0: I'm Robert Schertzer, Clinical Associate Professor at the University of British Columbia Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences and Director of the West Coast Glaucoma Center in Vancouver, BC, and we're talking about glaucoma with my guest, Dale Hoyer. In this episode, number 14, for late February 2011, we discuss the new devices being used for glaucoma surgery and the evidence for their benefit. Please check the show notes of this podcast for definitions and references related to today's topic. The show notes also include contact information to find me on Twitter, where I'm Rob Schertzer, my glaucoma EMR and tech blog, wholelotorob.com, and my office website, westcoastglaucoma.com. It also includes the contact information for Dr. Hoyer. Well, welcome, Dale. Welcome to the bat Cave here.
1: Rob, it's great to be here. Great.
0: I'd like to talk today about um, the newer surgical procedures for glaucoma. I mean, There's so many different options out there now. Different people see them at different meetings, or they have reps come around and they get interested in, in doing them, they, they see some literature that's thrust in, in front of them showing, hey, use this stent, use this new technique, you'll have fewer complications and those ugly trabeculectomies that that some people still do. So I thought we could talk about some of these newer techniques and what the evidence is of any of them being effective and maybe even touch on who pays for this stuff because there's extra costs involved in these devices and if they're no better than a trabeculectomy then uh, why should we be paying for them and who pays that
1: well, it's certainly uh, topical, Robin. I, I appreciate the opportunity to try and discuss this issue. I think that uh, trabeculectomy is clearly the operation we all love to hate. And uh, many years ago, when I started, it was hard to often get them to work. And now, with the use of antifibrotic agents and better understanding of wound healing we often get them to work, but then you have to be careful what you wish for. So now we have the problems of bleb infections and dysesthesia and bleb leaks and endophthalmitis. So,
0: and we end up with pressure that's too low and we get yeah. to tell the patient, you know, the procedure
1: worked, but it worked too well. It's Isn't like, that great? It's like the classic old saw, the, the operation was a success, but the patient died. <laughs> But I, I think that we are seeing a, a, a renaissance of interest in glaucoma surgery, even from uh, the entrepreneurial sector and uh, venture capitalists in the, in, the, in the states have taken an interest. Um, but I think one of the issues that we, we have to deal with is how do we get evidence-based information that allows us to make a, uh, an informed decision for our patients in terms of the safety and effic- efficacy of procedures. Now, just to in- clarify, in, in the states... Do you have to prove efficacy
0: or just safety for devices since yeah, you're you have involved to, in that? You
1: have to prove both. I understand that in, in Europe, and I'm not familiar with what, what the bar is in Canada, but in, in Europe, to get a CE approval, you just have to prove safety. Right, that's what it is here too, just so prove safety. So you have some devices that have not yet been approved uh, uh, down, down south in the lower 48, if you will. Um, but I think that you know, we have seen some, some, uh, some new developments, and I think actually the interest has generated a lot of new understanding and new areas of uh, exploration, particularly around Schlum's Canal and our mm-hmm. understanding of outflow. But I think uh, it started probably with uh, a lot of the work that Stegman did on uh, a deep sclerectomy, viscocanalostomy, and I know there was uh, a lot of interest, particularly in some parts of Europe, where that became the standard operation rather than trabeculectomy. Although in that realm, the, the randomized uh, data, that, the limited randomized data that was available suggested that trabeculectomy still gave more consistent pressures, and at least the or deep scorectomy, that those that did give lower pressures still had blebs. So that was perhaps not the ideal. Right, and the original study with Stegman, I mean, they were
0: good results, but they were in patients who weren't treated at all before. Exactly. And that was their primary procedure. Yeah,
1: and so I think actually the next extension of that, the viscocanalostomy with the uh, eye stent cannula uh, to, to uh, go around the canal and do 360 degree viscocanalostomy um, is. The, is Yeah, the eye science. Eye science, uh, thank you. Eye stent's another eye stent's thing we'll get another. to. We'll get to. Um, that is perhaps the most elegant glaucoma procedure, and I personally love the, the, the cannula for doing uh, pediatric glaucoma, which right. I still do a fair amount of. But uh, it is technically very challenging surgery, and uh, the one area that I think has been exciting is to see that with the addition of suture tensioning, uh, actually pressures in the lower teens do seem achievable. I think the challenge in that for that procedure remains uh, the technical difficulty of mm-hmm. doing it consistently for, for average surgeons. Uh, the fact that at least historically, folks have tended to do it uh, from a superior limbal location so that if it doesn't work, you've, you've now scarred up, scarred up a lot of the conjunctiva. And the third thing is since the excitement or the potential lowering seems to come from the suture tensioning, is is there some way to standardize that in a way that will more consistently get us those lower pressures that at least our moderate and advanced glaucoma patients need? I I think one of the sea changes we need to maybe think about a little bit is patients with earlier glaucoma, if we could get an operation that consistently and for the intermediate to longer term will achieve pressures of 16, 17, 18, those, those might be great for our patients with early disease and pressures in the 20s. But so many of the patients that I, as a glaucoma specialist, see have such bad damage, that's often not enough. Right. So same here. I mean, I
0: still do uh, full thickness procedures on in pseudophagic patients on rare occasions. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> I think one of the other uh, quasi-advances, at least some would characterize it, is a modification of the trabeculectomy with the... Um, um, the EXPRESS implant, which, as you know, was originally designed to just be a quick a quickie, and hence the name EXPRESS. Right, it was supposed to uh, go right through the stair it, yes. and no, no yeah. trapdoor done at all. And unfortunately with that approach, so many patients ended up with hypotony and coronal detachment that, that w- and erosion that that was relatively quickly abandoned uh, until L.E. DeHaan uh, came up with the concept of putting it under a scleral flap, just like a trabeculectomy instead of making the inner opening. And there's certainly a number of Advocates who are superb glaucoma surgeons that have pretty much switched to that exclusively for their trabeculectomies, uh, I tend to be a little bit of a data curmudgeon and uh, so far with with the exception of uh, one study from um, I think it was from holland and i'm i'm sorry i'm blocking on the gentleman's name, but uh, one study that did show that a year the the group with the express in which he did a randomized study had uh, fewer, was less dependent on medicines, uh, even though the two groups had similar outcome, the express group needed less medicines. That's that's actually the first encouraging piece of, you know, what we might characterize as pure evidence-based science.
0: Yeah, it's sort of, at least a more predictable surgery because you don't have the variabilities of the exactly. internal sclerotomy. sometimes ending up at the ciliary body, sometimes uh, getting a blood vessel. Yeah, So exactly. I've I have been doing this and I've done a few dozen of them. And I, I find the pressure is very predictable in those first six or eight weeks, but the long term result is probably identical. Yeah. So it's really a matter of this starts getting into that cost analysis. You know, what is the cost of a more, the, the cost savings of a more predictable first six or eight weeks after surgery? It certainly doesn't save our operating room a penny, and, you know, that's what they go by on the rationale whether, right. whether to pay for the implants.
1: Well, certainly one of the rationales that my colleagues have used it uh, a little more at our veterans' uh, hospital where sometimes follow-up early on is a problem uh, because it does seem like the, the initial follow-up may be a little less rigorous, and as you point out, the, the pressure is more predictable. So many people have, have advocated it as the ideal uh, approach for the occasional glaucoma surgeon, uh, who may not be quite as uh, tuned in to some of the nuances in terms of flap tightness and suture size and or hole size and and, and water tightness of the wound. Um, have you found that the tightness of your flap makes a great deal of difference in the outcome? Or?
0: Well, I find that basically you can't get a watertight flap. It takes up just enough room that it, it does make the flap uh, stay a little bit open, and that's probably why we're getting that pressure some have also be 8 to 10 okay. right after surgery and stays there.
1: And some have, have made an observation that they seem to get more posterior blebs with at least one of the designs, and I i don't personally use it, so I'm not familiar with the, the P and the R. Right, that's R, the but, P, 50 versus um, the R, P for posterior. Then so, uh, that's something we're always uh, trying to achieve. So I think you know there's a uh, possibility there, but I think a, Peter Netland's large study looking at a case control at a year the mm-hmm. visual outcome and the pressure outcome was the same so it's back to your point how much are we willing to pay for maybe a visit or two less to the doctor in the post-operative period if, it, if in the intermediate to long term we don't have a better visual outcome it becomes a hard sell I think we're all going to be pressed to get the data and I, I think it does create a real problem because most of the companies developing these devices are small, right. they're, they're, uh, they tend to be capital starved, and if regulatory agencies or the healthcare funders in general start to say, unless you show us evidence compared to whatever the gold standard is, that you have a, uh, a better outcome, uh, I think we will actually uh, really inhibit uh, innovation, which I think is a bad thing. As much of a purist as I like to be, I think it is actually in many respects incumbent on the glaucoma community to to generate those data, right? Um, kind of because if the companies have to do it first of all, there's always the Potential percep- perception that those companies have a, a vested interest in the outcome and the view the results are always viewed a little bit with a jaded outcome but I, I, I think the the glaucoma community really probably needs to develop some kind of registry approach that can can do fairly large, intermediate term, th- three to five year follow up on uh, large numbers of patients in a way that we can get the kind of data that w- we all need to move our patient care in the right direction. So I think there's a case in point with the express implant right. that we just, we need more data um, other than the one study from, uh, I think, Holland.
0: Yeah, and we've also, over the years, we've actually changed how we do our tr- basic trabeculectomy based on studies like the anti metabolite studies, probably changed our technique in glaucoma surgery uh, to to make the trabe- trabeculectomy not so bad after all.
1: Yeah, we That's, definitely had to get much better at wound closure and pay a yeah. lot more attention to that. And I think that it, that being a, compelled to do that because of the, the wound healing mod- modulation did improve the outcome because we know that if a bleb leaks it's less likely to work in the long term and we had if we didn't sell them well they definitely leaked.
0: So now we have a moving uh, baseline to try to compare the newer techniques to if our crabs are getting better. What about some of the other
1: Well I think the other uh, the other approaches that I think seem to have gathered some traction, particularly in the in the States and elsewhere, are related to, uh, again, to the canal, but more of a goniotomy approach, mm-hmm. whether it's the trabectome, which was kind of an innovative, innovative concept, at least the teaching historically has been that goniotomy in adults t- doesn't tend to work because the tissue tends to collapse on itself and scar. Yeah, and so and why not just remove it all? So, and uh, uh, George Barvold and uh, some colleagues, you know, thought about and you just ablating it with cautery and taking out a strip with a cleverly divide, d- d- designed footplate that protects the outer wall of Schlemm's Canal. Um, and at least the uh, intermediate term uh, results that uh, I think Don Minkler and Brian Francis have been a couple of the drivers of looks uh, relatively promising in terms of providing that kind of high teens, uh, high to mid-teens outcome that I mentioned earlier that particularly could shift our paradigm from you know, constantly marinating eyes with medications, uh, and maybe trying one medicine and that doesn't work, going to one of these other approaches. Uh, other things that are are done in Europe in that regard, and I, and I guess in Canada is the new eye stent, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of like a, a you can only think of it like a snorkel. Instead of cutting away Schlemm's canal, it's inserted into Schlemm's canal, bypassing what we've historically thought was the area of greatest resistance at the juxtacanalicular apparatus. And with two of those, uh, uh, Doug Johnson uh, did some nice work in bank eyes and showed that you were able to get progressive uh, uh, pressure lowering with one or two minimal incremental at three. Uh, and I think the approach generally being taken and there's a paper uh, I think an investigative uh, by a gentleman whose name I can't pronounce Uh, that showed that it did have added value to uh, cataract surgery. And that actually seems to be one of the areas where there's perhaps the most interest is kind of add-on therapy to cataract surgery in glaucoma patients. We certainly know that cataract surgery itself will tend to lower the pressure a little bit for a while, uh, but uh, studies, randomized study of of the of the eye stent, or what I tend to call the snorkel, so I don't get confused with right. the with the eye science cannula, which right. I already got confused with, um, did show an, an incremental benefit at a year. In the U.S., uh, the um, eye stent has gone to the FDA and has been given. Approvability, if I understand the language correctly, and even though I'm, I'm approvability on, on the pa- very political. I, I'm on the panel, and I, I still haven't quite figured out all the nuances. But it was deemed approvable by the panel. But it still means the FDA has to decide, and it often takes a year or so okay. for the FDA to rule on that. So that's not yet available in the U.S. Have, have you been using it up here, or some of I've, your colleagues? I've put in some.
0: I've put in five pairs okay. in patients here too small a number to tell just yet, but it certainly, at least in my hands, doesn't seem like something that will replace uh, trabeculectomy by any means. It's yeah. probably about as effective as a single medication.
1: Okay. Ano- another up. approach similar to both the, tra- uh, the trabectome and the eye stent that's available in Europe, is, at least in some centers, is an erbium I think it's an erbium YAG for doing trabeculostomy. Mm-hmm. That's the one that Mike berlin Mike Berlin's on. device yeah. and basically instead of cutting away all of the meshwork they make 10 holes again to bypass that near uh uh juxtacanalicular obstruction.
0: Right and it even senses the depth it's at so it delivers the right energy to yeah. to just go through the yeah. canal. It sounds
1: really elegant and I think One of the things I've heard, and I haven't seen the original data, but with the newer understanding of the outflow channels, it seems that these, uh, in in some patients anyway, the juxtacanalicular problem may not be the only problem in outflow. It may be that particularly after a long period of time, the uphill or the downstream uh, drains may also be a problem. So uh, I've heard secondhand stigma advocate Uh, doing an intraoperative diagnostic technique of canalography, or if you will, actually what you can do is just lower the pressure and see if you get blood reflux. And that actually may be a reasonable prognostic sign to determine where canal surgery of any ilk may be appropriate, whether it's uh, canaloplasty, uh, trabectome, eye stent, or, uh, uh, or trabeculostomy. If you see the blood reflux, that suggests that the downhill part is working pretty well, right. uh, and so that those may be good candidates. If you don't see that, it may be those are patients where you're better doing a more traditional outflow approach. So yeah, stay tuned. Thought. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah, I think there's also been a lot of, uh, there's historically always been a desire uh, in terms of trying to find a, a blebless approach to again revisit uh, psychodialysis type uh, uh, issues. Uh, there was the uh, uh, Solex in, uh, gold shunt that right. was investigated, and I haven't heard much
0: about that. They seem to be trying to uh, rebrand that now. I don't know if it's a different distributor, but someone else came by my office saying, oh, no, this is the new Solex. The new
1: and improved, yeah. I think, yeah. And you, mean,
0: you mean the thing that uh, creates a glorified cyclo-dialysis cleft,
1: yeah. that one? And I know Bruce Shields had a device that he was working on that was a psychodialysis, but I think my understanding is that he he wasn't impressed with the long-term outcome and abandoned it, but I also know there are some venture capital groups looking at other psychodialysis approaches. Uh, The the nice thing there, and also similar to the goniotomy approaches, you can do them through a small small incision, um, and they would presumably be blebless, but... I guess all I can say about that is stay tuned. Right. Just that just reminds
0: me, going back to wanting this blebless approach, uh, presumably also to preserve tissue if other surgeries needed. When you mentioned the eye science cannulostomy and the problem with doing the surgery from above and scarring some of the tissue there, have people been doing the surgery from temporal like uh, we do in like we do yeah, in babies? I,
1: I've certainly advocated that. I think the. Uh, one of the issues that, at least the folks that have a lot of experience with this, and I've, am trained to do it, but again, the, my case mix isn't quite right that I've uh, been able to do do it in any patients. But right now, that particular procedure combines multiple potential mechanisms of action. It tightens the outflow, the native outflow with the suture. Right, the Maryland technique. Yeah, they use the, uh, well without pulling through, but right. yeah, yeah. They create a scleral lake like in deep Um and so it's a little hard, and they do the visco-dilation. So it's a little hard to know which of the three is working. I've actually said that if if we could do it without the scleral lake, first of all, it would make it technically a little easier because you wouldn't have to get the decimase window, right. um, but and again, I have not seen published data, but some of our colleagues have told me that there are data that suggests that you need all three to get the pressure down. But again, if we could do it temporally or infratemporally, preserve the upper conjunctiva, just do the, the viscocanalostomy or the viscodilation and the tightening without the lake, I think it would be good. If you are going to end up with some potential bleb, which once you make a scleral lake, some of the patients are going to get a bleb We all have some concern anyway about blebs, inferiorly and temporally. Um, The other issue is frankly, um, summary cosmesis and short-term comfort, because eyes that if if you do the the procedure temporally, they have more foreign body sensation after the procedure.
0: especially if there's gonna be some sort of bleb there too. And
1: the sutures, uh, from the sutures, and the eyes tend to be a little redder for the long, for intermediate term. Uh, which some patients may find problematic, and it's nice when that's tucked up under the upper eyelid, but I think glaucoma surgery is so much like a game of chess. It's always nice to know what your next move or two is going to be, and you hate to exercise a move that really makes your next move less uh, desirable, unless you know you got a a guaranteed winner.
0: Right, which is uh, perhaps a trabeculectomy?
1: (laughs) Well, at the end of the day, it's still the gold standard. I think that in pseudophagic eyes, um, you know, the tube versus trabeculectomy study with uh, at least three-year data suggests that maybe we've sold shunts, uh, aqueous shunts, short based on the gr- the really bad group of patients right. we've historically done them. I was very surprised to see how low the pressures have been in the tube versus trabec study, uh, averaging right with the trabeculectomy.
0: Right, because historically, when we were first doing tubes, it was on always, end stage, exactly. always failed previous surgery, and
1: so it really shows the problem of you know comparing studies, even when they may look fairly comparable. Right. Uh, also, the medication requirements, you know, by three years, there's not a big difference between the trabeculectomy and the tube group. So, stay tuned. I understand that the five-year results will be presented at the American Glaucoma Society. The one thing we haven't answered with the tube versus Trab study is the long-term corneal issue. Uh, and I think as people develop, at least for pseudofakes, maybe better, more predictable ways of putting the tubes in through the posterior chamber, uh, maybe that'll matter less. Uh, and certainly, uh, there are all all kinds of potential opportunities making smaller tubes, uh, maybe using OCT to guide insertion. I, I, I still, even though I've been doing tubes since uh, about 1986, it's always a little bit of a mystery still when I put it in, and I think it's right up against the iris, where is it going to be in six months?
0: Yeah, Yep. Yeah, put it in. Sometimes I'll go in a few times during the procedure. You know, it's too close to the cornea, too close to the iris, and it's never in the same place even the next day. Right. Exactly. Who knows? The joys of what we do. Well, I guess that's a wrap then.
1: Hey, Rob, great speaking with you. Great. Thanks for thanks the invitation.
0: So, thanks so much. As a footnote for this episode, since the time of this recording, I have performed three canaloplasties and have three more booked for March 2011. As discussed within the episode, although technically challenging in how it combines three different non-bleb-forming procedures, it does have four-year data showing greater than 30% IOP reduction and might be a valuable option before trabeculectomy for some patients the cardiac correlate would be that canaloplasty is like angioplasty, whereas a trabeculectomy or other bleb-forming procedures are like bypass surgery. It might be worth giving angioplasty a try before proceeding with the bypass. That's our show for today. Be sure to subscribe via iTunes. Simply search Glaucoma or Scherzer and you'll easily find it. Subscribe to the RSS feed, or find this podcast in the Eye Handbook in the lectures section for download media so you won't miss an episode. Follow me on Twitter to learn more about upcoming episodes and other news about glaucoma, electronic medical records, technology, healthcare, and education, and visit wholelotterrob.com and westcoastglaucoma.com. If you have a moment to post a review on iTunes, it would be most appreciated as well. If you're a glaucoma specialist who's attending the American Glaucoma Society annual meeting, March 3rd through 6, 2011, and have a topic you'd like to discuss for a future episode, please contact me so that we can arrange a recording session during the meeting. I produce Talking About Glaucoma without any technical or financial support. Approximately once each month or so, as time permits. The AAC format is the enhanced version that includes chapter markers and show notes. The MP3 format just has the audio. If listening from your computer, on my blog, website, or iTunes, or from an iPod or iPhone, and most other portable devices, the enhanced version is the better choice, so try it first. Once again, on Twitter, I am Rob Schertzer. My blog is wholelotarob.com, and my website, westcoastglaucoma.com. Look for me everywhere. Drop me a line at at podcast.iguy.org and rate the show on iTunes. Please help detect and treat glaucoma by keeping yourself informed.